question was, how much energy does it take to strip both electrons out of a helium atom? And I didn't realize that it was a trick question. But half the people said uh, minus 78.975, and half said plus. But if it was minus, that would mean that it's giving out energy. So you have to put in energy to strip them, yeah? Um, what time do you take down these uh, reading assignments? Nine o'clock is when it closes. <laughs> Why? So there's no general answer for the trial wave function. It depends on what the actual wave function looks like. Hopefully you have something that looks qualitatively similar. So you have to have some guess, usually. Um, the Gaussian wave function people like because it's easy to do the calculations. And uh, if it's something that has a hump in it, then Gaussian has a hump in it. Griffiths mentioned that we never touched the Hamiltonian the very variational method. Why is that? I couldn't find where he actually said that, but uh, I mean, you take the expectation value of the Hamiltonian. That's all you have to do. So why does it work only for the ground state, and is there a generalized method to extending the variational principle to apply to any excited state outside of something similar to problem 7.4's procedure for the first excited state? So it only works for the ground state because uh, the ground state is the lowest, so you get an upper bound. So if I put in a trial wave function, I can get anything, I can get some energy that's bigger than the ground state. But that won't tell me, that will be above or below any other state. So you need some way to guarantee that you're excluding all the states below the one that you want. So in 7.4, there's a trick for doing that in certain cases. I'm confused about the screening effect or the effect of Z. How does one electron in the same orbital with another one screen the second from the nucleus? So because we're talking about wave functions, it's a probabilistic thing. On average, there's an effect of Z because on average, on average you average it out and it averages out to some effect of Z. Um, I mean, it depends on how, when, I mean, it's, it's probabilistic, right? I don't know what else to say. Uh, I think I got a little lost when Griffiths brings in eyes of two on page 300. What is the purpose of calling the integral eyes of two? It's because uh, he ran out of room on the page. The equation is getting very big, so he only takes the inside integral over the second uh, electron positions. Now that's usually why you introduce new names, right? Because your equation gets too long. It was said that there's no known exact solution for the ground state of helium as there are exact solutions to any other states of helium. Uh, so, as we know, exact means exact, neglecting various things. So for ionized uh, helium where there's a single electron, then you can use the hydrogen wave functions. 
but that's only approximate because there are other corrections. So the ground state is the simplest one if you, it's a neutral helium. So the other ones will be more complicated. Why does the first order non-degenerate perturbation theory always overestimate the ground state energy? Because you can think of first order non-degenerate perturbation theory as a variational calculation where you take your trial wave function to be the unperturbed wave functions. That's a random, well, not ran random, but that's your guess wave function, that it's the wave function without any corrections. And then that, your trial wave function has to give you something bigger than the ground state energy. When Griffiths is approximating a hydrogen molecule ion, he says we would like to treat the two protons on an equal footing. So he makes the combined wave function two atomic orbitals. So see why treating the two protons equal footing would imply the system would be unchanged by renaming the pro two protons, but how do you get atomic or orbitals from this? So what he says is we'll take a wave function that uh, depends on the distance from proton one and we'll add the wave function that has the distance from proton two. So that's symmetric under the interchange. And then <coughs> since it's an electron around a proton, his first guess is to take just atomic hydrogen wave functions. So that's just the guess part. But uh, since we know those wave functions, and we know how to do those overlaps, it's a useful guess. <coughs> and that's what chemists do all the time. Uh, is there any significance to the direct and exchange integrals, as in do they show up in other problems, or are they just put here to make it easier, easier to handle the math? Um, so if you have any diatomic molecule, you'll have the same kind of things. And if you have a polyatomic molecule, then you'll have many different types of exchange integrals. If the variational principle is so powerful and easy to use, why do we not learn about it first, and why do we, not, why do we need to solve the Schrodinger equation at all? because we can solve it sometimes, so we might as well learn those. I mean, the goal is to solve the Schrodinger equation, so we learn about the Schrodinger equation. This is just an approximate technique when we get too tired to put in all the effort to really solve it. Um, when we estimated the ground state energy of the singly ionized HH molecule, how could we neglect the proton-proton repulsion in the initial Hamiltonian? inserts it by hand in, into 7.51. So this is actually a really important thing. Uh, we sort of saw it before when we did diatomic uh, rotational levels. The idea is that the electrons are light, so they move really fast. The protons are heavy, so they move slowly. So first, we take care of the things that move fast. We, so since they're moving so fast, relative to them, the protons are just sitting still. So as our first approximation, we just say protons are at some fixed distance. And we find the wave functions for the electrons with the protons at those fixed positions. After we've calculated those wave functions, we can find the expectation value for the energy as a function of the fixed proton distance. Then, if we want to, we can solve for the wave function of the protons moving in that effective potential. So in quantum mechanics, this is called the Born-Oppenheimer approximation. The idea is you first average over the fast degrees of freedom, then work out the effective theory of the slow degrees of freedom. The same technique is very important in particle physics and quantum field theory, where it's called effective field theory. 
because <clears throat> you can average over the short distance high energy, fast, rapidly oscillating stuff and get an effective theory for the slow, low energy, long wavelength stuff. Especially if you don't know what's in the extreme limit, if there's something happening at a very short distance scale, smaller than your experiment can probe, then you have to average over that because you have no information about that, really. Here we have some information about how the electrons, what the electrons are doing, so we can actually do a calculation to do that averaging explicitly, and then as a second step, work out how the protons move in the effective theory. Okay, so fast moving and very small mean kind of the same thing. This by fast moving, I mean fast, fast moving, I mean they have large energies and large momenta or large velocities <laughs> compared to protons. Protons are 2,000 times heavier, so they, on average, their velocities will be 2,000 times smaller. The wave functions don't really kind of have velocities. Well, it's a but there's an expectation value of velocity squared. Okay. So the kinetic term is, or v squared has an expectation value. And there's a time scale also associated with those orbitals. Because of their energy levels, there's also a time, energy and time are conjugate variables. So big energies means short times. Any other questions? So we're going to do all of chapter seven today, so that we can start time-dependent perturbation theory on Wednesday. So the idea is we take any normalized wave function if you didn't normalize it it won't work so the overlap of psi with itself is one and then we're guaranteed that the ground state energy must be less than or equal to the expectation value of the Hamiltonian in that trial wave function. And to see that that's really true, we can just write any arbitrary wave function could be written as a linear combination of the true energy eigenstates, psi sub n, because they make a complete basis, just like in linear algebra, you can write a vector in terms of the basis vectors. So for each of those energy eigenstates, there's some energy eigenvalue. And we know that the state is normalized. So if we write that out, that's a expand our wave trial wave function in the basis of energy eigenstates. So we have a double sum over M and N. This guy that's in the bra gets a complex conjugate as usual. And we have an overlap of psi m with psi n. But these are energy eigenstates, so they're orthonormal. That's part of being a basis. So m has to equal n. And so this is just the modulus of cn squared. And if we take the expectation value of the Hamiltonian, 
We have a similar looking expression. And a Hamiltonian sandwiched in the middle. And now <coughs> H can act on psi n. That will just give us an En, the energy of that level. En is just a number, so it comes out of the overlap. And then this is delta mn again, because they're orthonormal. orthonormal. Now, every En, every energy level, is has an energy bigger than or equal to the ground state energy. That's what ground state energy means. It's the lowest one. So this, if I replace En by the ground state energy in each term, that has to be less than this. Because each term is less. And uh, this sum is equal to 1. So this expectation value is bigger than the ground state energy. Uh, yep? Then they don't get grades for those readings. Right, so I forgot 2. I'm just wondering, do you drop like the lowest 2 or no? No. <laughs> but you know they're they're like five percent of the final grade. They're ten. Okay, they're ten. We can't change it now. I mean, there's a lot of them. So eight out of thirty lectures. Study an extra hour for the final, and it'll make up the difference. Okay, so we'll do an example. Uh, my example is going to be this Hamiltonian. So we've got a kinetic term, a radial kinetic term, a centrifugal term, and a one over r, a one over r potential. Looks familiar, right? Looks like hydrogen. It is hydrogen. And we'll make life easy and take L equals zero. So what we need is a trial wave function. Uh, so we need a radial wave function and a YLM. But if we're saying we're already, we already know that it's L equals zero, then the only possibility is Y zero zero. And for R, we'll just take some random guess e to the minus br, and a is just some normalization. So the whole thing doesn't work unless we normalize the, our trial wave function. So the first thing we have to do is normalize it. And uh, We've seen that integral many times. 
and that's supposed to be equal to 1. So a squared is 8b cubed <coughs> 2, which is 4b cubed. Now we just have to take the expectation value. Hmm? We have to take the expectation value of this Hamiltonian in our trial wave function. Um, so actually, first I want to work out the derivative. So the derivative of r brings down a minus b from the exponential. And then I need r squared times that and another derivative. So out front, I can take uh, every term will have that exponential in it. And when I differentiate r squared, I'll get 2r. And when it hits the exponential, I'll bring down another minus b. Okay, so now we can take the expectation value. So the YLMs will just give us a factor of 1 because they're normalized. So we just have to do the radial part. So there's an a squared. Uh, should be an r squared somewhere. Oh, and there's the minus h bar squared over 2m r squared. Uh, so there's a, this term vanishes because L, L equals zero. And we need R times this for the first term. Let me factor out an E to the minus 2BR. Uh, so there's, um, <coughs> so we've got the, two exponentials, two factors of a, so we just need the minus b times 2r minus br squared, and then there's the potential term. We know that a squared is 4b cubed. squareds cancel, minus signs cancel, so again we have our favorite integrals exponential with powers of r. So we'll get uh, some terms with some factorials.
one will give us a 1 factorial over 2b squared. This one will give us a 2 factorial over 2b cubed. And this one also gives us the 1 factorial. It's the same power bar. So this is 1 over 2b minus 1 over 4b. This is h bar alpha c over 4b squared. So four, half minus a quarter is a quarter, so the 4s cancel and we get b squared cancel here, get h bar alpha c b. So there's the expectation value as a function of b, which was just our trial parameter. Now we want to minimize that energy, so we take a derivative with respect to b. So the first term will give us h bar squared over m times b second term will give us minus h bar alpha c, and we want that to be at a minimum, so it's zero. So b is alpha mc over h bar. Sounds good. Sounds like the Bohr radius. And if we plug that back into the energy, So we'll get the h-bars cancel, we get alpha squared mc squared over 2 minus alpha squared mc squared. And so that's the hydrogen binding energy. And if we'd taken, so by guessing, we randomly guessed the right functional form of the wave function, so we get the exact answer. If we'd taken a Gaussian, because we hadn't read chapter 4, then we would have got uh, minus 11 electron volts, so still not too bad. Are there any questions? Yeah. You mean take the derivative with respect to b here? Inside the integral? Um, that should work since it's a convergent integral. Is 
sounds like a good exam question. There's no reason that I know of. Except this is the way he did it, so I did it his way. There's another question. Um, yeah, can you do this for multi-variable uh, functions? Like, so maybe have a couple parameters? Yeah, you, yeah. It's just harder. So usually you end up doing things numerically if you have one, more than one parameter. So I guess the reason he did it this way is that by doing the integral first, then we can plug in and get the energy. So if you took the derivative first, you'd still have to do the in integral in the end to find what the energy was. Next up is our third attempt at helium. So we have two protons and two electrons. Since we've solved this twice before, Everyone knows the Hamiltonian? Well, we approximately solved it twice before. So we have attractive potentials for each of the electrons and then a repulsive potential between the two electrons. And uh, this is what we're going to call BEE. And we know the ground state experimentally is minus 78.975, which means it takes plus 78.975 electrovolts to release those electrons. I think in first order perturbation theory, we found. minus 75 electron volts. So what we're going to do is try to take some hydrogen-like uh, wave function. <coughs> so if we had Z protons in a hydrogen-like atom, then we know we just multiply all the alphas by z. And a goes like one over <coughs> alpha. Four radius. So our trial wave function will just take a wave function for each one. <coughs> and 
then if we rewrite the Hamiltonian so that uh, part of it, we can rewrite this so it divides into two pieces. One piece that's the eigenfunction of, and then the other piece will have to take an expectation value. So these, this wave function is an eigenfunction of this Hamiltonian. R2. This is just yes. Are those really Z's or those supposed to be two? Those are really Z's. Because uh, I'm going to use Z as a variational parameter. <coughs> and so this is my guess for the wave function. It's a normalized wave function with a parameter z. And I want to use the hydrogen wave function because now there's two protons. And I don't want to use z equals 2 because uh, I want a parameter to play with. Yeah? So this Hamiltonian is the Hamiltonian that has these as its eigenfunctions. But that's not the Hamiltonian we have. So what we have to do is uh, add this fake potential back in, and uh, so it cancels this, and put this back in. So this is still our VEE, the repulsive term for the electrons. And this is the difference. Oops. I want to plus here on that. This is the difference between the real potential between the protons and the electrons and the fake one that matches up with our trial wave function. So now when we take the expectation value, called it psi zero. Uh, this first piece is easy. It's just two copies of a hydrogen. So we'll have with Z protons. So we get the hydrogen energy times two Z squared. Now these guys, since this wave function is symmetric in R1 and R2, the expectation value of R1 is the same as the expectation value of R2. And it's just <coughs> the same as the expectation value of a, in a hydrogen atom. So that part is easy too. And the only hard part is this repulsion term. So this one over R part, uh, we know from our previous calculations with hydrogen. Z over A. So we can work out this term explicitly. There's 2 times Z minus 2, H bar alpha C, times this expectation value, 
then you can write this h bar alpha c over a is minus two times hydrogen binding energy. So we've got the first two terms. The last term is going to be up on the web. So I'm going to I'm not going to do the whole integral. I'll write it out later so it's up on the web if you want to see the steps. Um set it up. So what we need is this. If we plug in the wave functions, we'll have an integral of e to the minus 2z r1 plus r2 over a over r1 minus r2 d3 r1 d3 r2. step. We can write this as <coughs> r1 minus r2 cos theta. We choose the z-axis along r1. R1 squared plus R2 squared minus 2 R1 R2 cos theta 2. So then we just try to do the D3 R2 integration. And uh, I'll put it up on the web. It's kind of painful. The trick is <coughs> first do the angular integration, then you get some crazy function that involves absolute values of uh, R1 minus R2. Then you can split the R2 integration up into two regions, from 0 to R1 and R1 to infinity. And then there are simple functions in each of those regions. And then at the bottom of the page, it's going to say that you get After consulting some tables of integrals, some function of R1. And now all the angular integrations, the angle between them has been integrated over. So then the remaining angular, angular integrations are trivial. get the expectation value of the repulsive potential so I have to do the integration of R1 
and we can do the phi integration right away. consulting another table of integrals get five eighths h bar alpha c z over a which expressed in terms of hydrogen binding energies is five quarters z e1 with a minus sign. So the expectation value of the Hamiltonian quadratic function of z. And each term is proportional to e1. So now we want to minimize that get a bound on the ground state energy. There's a two here. We'll set that equal to the derivative equal to zero. So z is twenty-seven sixteenths. It's about one point six nine. And plugging that back in minus 77.5 electron volts. So we're within 2%. And if you want to do better than 2%, you take a wave function with two parameters, and then three parameters and four parameters. Keep going until you run out of enthusiasm. But like Griff Griffith says, we ran out of enthusiasm a page ago. We've got 10 minutes to do the hydrogen molecule. So I'm going to skip some stuff on that one too. The important idea again is that we first pretend that we can fix the distance between the protons. worry about where the electron is. And since we're just fixing the distance between the protons first, there's another term in the Hamiltonian for the repulsive potential between the protons, but it doesn't come into our variational calculation because that we're taking that R to be fixed because that's part of the slowly moving 
part. So if we take a linear combination of atomic orbitals as our guess, to make sure that we normalize this. These guys are already normalized because they're just hydrogen wave functions. But then we, oops, there's this uh, zero here. Then we have to do this slightly nasty integral, which the answer is in the book, and I'll put the steps in the notes. After we get it normalized, we'll find some expression for A. Then we can calculate the uh, expectation value of the Hamiltonian. So I think we'll take about that much space. So there'll be the ordinary, um, the term with the kinetic term and the Coulomb potential. So we'll just get a hydrogen energy from that piece, and then there are the remaining terms. So with that same uh, overall normalization A, we'll get a bunch of correction terms. There'll be the wave function with R1 the one over R2. And there'll be a wave function with R1, with the one over R1, and a wave function with R2, and then a bra with R2, one over R2, and a ket with R1. Basically all the possible combinations. Finally, 1 over R1 with R2 in the wave functions. And uh, by symmetry, these guys in the middle have to be the same. Just interchanging R1 and R2, and then the first guy and the last guy are the same.
and then <coughs> because they're too hard to work out, we just give them names. direct. This one's called exchange. So this is, given that it's orbiting around one proton, this is the contribution of the attraction to the other proton. That's direct. This is some off-diagonal mixing thing. So, if you're really dedicated, you can calculate that the direct piece has a A over R, 1 plus A over R, e to the minus 2R over A. And the exchange has a 1 plus R over A, e to the minus R over A. And we know hydrogen binding energy goes like alpha squared mc squared over 2, which is like h bar alpha c over 2a. So finally we can get an expression for the expectation value. Factoring out the hydrogen energy. And there's also the repulsion between the protons, which we can also factor out hydrogen energy. So then, given all that, we can minimize the expectation about the total energy as a function of R. So the equilibrium position of that total potential now, we've, effect, we've derived some effective potential between the protons after averaging over uh, the electrons with our trial wave functions. So you get that that the minimum of the potential occurs when R is 2.4 times the Bohr radius, which is about 1.3 angstroms. And experimentally, you get 1.06 angstroms. So I did a little calculation. Fancier could have combined what we did with helium and taken the z and the trial wave function to be a parameter as well. And then if I minimize over that extra parameter z, I get a potential that looks like this. So then the minimum is here. And this is the experimental value for the expectation value between the protons. So you can see that. This at least tells you that it's bound because the binding energy is negative, the calculation. 
that he did in the book. Fancier calculation gets even closer to the experimental answer. And then you could try it with one more parameter. That wouldn't be a good exam question. Yep. Just a question. If you kept on adding parameters, could you essentially, like, if you took a limit as your parameters go to infinity, could you actually get the exact answer or something? Yeah. If you had time to do an infinite number of parameters. But I mean, like, if you could get an expression for, like, what it would be after you add another parameter, another parameter, like a sequence of numbers. Um, well, is it possible, or was it just too that, That's the same as solving the Schrodinger equations. Okay. If, if you could do it. So here's an actual picture. Um, I put some red dots where the protons are. So when you put in the wave functions, you get out after with the fancy minimizing with respect to z as well. You get that the electron likes to sit in between the protons, which is uh, sort of what you expected. So this is a covalent bond, right? The electron is shared between the two nuclei. Yep. Is that a question? There's the proton one and proton two. Okay. okay, we're only two minutes over. So remember to vote on the poll about when we're having our makeup review session next week. Why do we need a makeup review session? Because we're not having a class on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's next Wednesday. So we're going to have a review session on Monday or Tuesday, depending on what time you guys pick. We have home review Tuesday? Uh, I don't remember. I don't think so, but uh, better check. No, it's the week after. But it would be better to have the review session before the midterm than after, I think. Just, just an idea.